Hello everyone and welcome to a lecture on critical thinking. This is actually a lecture I was asked to give to a group of students um, at the university I work at and I thought I would share it more widely because I think uh, much of what I say here could be helpful uh, for anyone. It's, it should be good food for thought. I hope you find it interesting. We live as you already know, in an age in which thinking itself is under threat. The information age is also the age of misinformation. And in addition to this, many people characterize our age as going through a crisis of meaning. There is a crisis of intelligibility, a crisis of coherence. I do think that the digital environment has played a massive role in this. There's an excess of information that doesn't necessarily result in understanding. In fact, I think the excess produces misunderstanding in some way. And I don't think universities are entirely exempt from this. They're not immune to the mimetic contagion of stupidity. Carlo Kippola notes in his very funny and interesting book, The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity, that the number of stupid people is a constant no matter which group you happen to be looking at. So I'm not, I'm not dissing a specific class of people. I do think stupidity is rife in all sorts of forms in various classes of people. And, and I do think even academia is, is more at risk of, of unintelligence uh, because it follows a factory model increasingly. There's a kind of production line, especially with the, the publish or perish way of thinking that has become standard. Um, as the old joke goes, form follows funding. The philosopher Byung-Chul Han, who I really like, he argues in his book The Transparency Society that we live in a world freed from hermeneutic depth and indeed from any meaning. Uh, hermeneutics pertains to interpretation, this is the problem at its heart of immediacy, where immediacy, what is immediately intelligible, comes to replace mediation. We have taken, as Han argues, we've taken leave of both dialectics and hermeneutics in favor of the supposedly unmediated. This is, I think, the key issue. That's the key thing that stands in the way of thinking. And so, just to be clear, immediacy, if it is immediately intelligible, you have to start questioning whether that is thinking. It probably isn't. If it is obvious to you, you are not yet thinking. Moreover, we find ourselves in a world of excessive opinion, which is compulsive. Opinion functions along the lines of a compulsion, a reaction, rather than being thoughtful. And so, to be clear on that, thinking does not mean resorting to mere opinion. I think thinking is risky. It requires time to contemplate. It's, it's not about rapid judgments that keep up with today's zeitgeist of accelerationism and presentism. Thinking is also, for this reason, not fashionable. It goes against the, the, the stream. It goes against the flow. People are more fond these days of curating their lives than of curating the thoughts that fly in into and out of their heads, and I think that that is a kind of tragedy. As Jonathan Haber writes in his book on critical thinking, errors in judgment continue to plague us at the individual and societal levels. We have so much evidence of this, and I don't think it's therefore something that um, I need to convince you of. Now, at one level, 
we need so-called critical thinking. I do agree with that. That is a specific form of analysis and evaluation that allows us to form judgments by better understanding and applying things like rhetoric, argumentation, types of reasoning. And the point of this is to diminish the power of logical fallacies and cognitive biases. And so I would recommend that in your own time, you go and really look at those things. Go and try and understand how rhetoric works, how argumentation works. Go and look at different ways of reasoning um, and definitely consult. There are many dictionaries in a way of, of logical fallacies and cognitive biases um, that they're very useful for getting a sense of where thinking goes wrong. My advice in this regard is obviously to study these things in your own time. Um, it's not something that I can cover in a single lecture like this. But I would still say that critical thinking of that kind requires a foundation. And so that is going to be my focus here. What the foundation of critical thinking is, is just thinking. If we get thinking right, critical thinking will be a lot easier. So I hope you will understand that that is my aim here, is to introduce in a way what critical thinking needs to be rooted in. So what is thinking? At this point, I want to take something of the scenic route. I want to take a detour via Nietzsche and Heidegger before landing at some practical directives on how to think better. Things are going to get a bit fuzzy first before I start to make them clearer, and I think that that somewhat mirrors how thinking works. I do think it starts in somewhat fuzzy territory before working towards some form of clarity. So here is a, a provocation from Nietzsche's late notebooks. This, more specifically, it's his notebook 38 from July 1885. There he writes, In the form in which it comes, a thought is a sign with many meanings requiring interpretation, or, more precisely, an arbitrary narrowing and restriction before it finally becomes clear. There are a few ideas, just even in that starting, a bit of the paragraph I want to read you that I think are worth highlighting. Firstly, there's the idea that a thought is not a simple thing. There's no sort of simple thought. It does have to be narrowed and clarified, even if this must be done somewhat arbitrarily. And sometimes that does happen. But that is not the end of thinking. If anything, that is just the beginning. And so I'm going to move back to what Nietzsche carries on with. It, that is the thought, arises in me. Where from? How? I don't know. It comes independently of my will, usually circled about and clouded by a crowd of feelings, desires, aversions, and other thoughts, often enough scarcely distinguishable from a willing and a feeling. Just very briefly, I want to point out thinking, Nietzsche is suggesting here, is embodied. I'll get to more on that later. It, the thought Nietzsche continues, is drawn out of a crowd, it is cleaned, set on its feet, watched as it stands there, moves about. All this at an amazing speed, yet without any sense of haste. Who does all of this? I don't know. And I'm certainly more observer than author of the process. Then its case is tried. The question is posed, what does it mean? What is it allowed to mean? Is it right or wrong? The help of other thoughts is called on. It is compared. In this way of thinking, there is a judge an opposing party, even an examination of the witnesses, which I am permitted to observe for a while. 
only a while. To be sure, most of the process, it seems, escapes me. So there's a lot to highlight here. Nietzsche assumes that thoughts don't always arrive willfully, even if we sometimes feel that our will is involved. Certainly, our will is going to be involved in some way. Thinking, as he puts it, and I think this is right, does not mean controlling. The problem of taking the immediate as obvious, in fact, is a problem of over-control. Thinking involves a different sort of posture, a receptivity, an openness to otherness. To add to this, as Nietzsche gets to rather beautifully, thinking is often messy. Vitally, thinking also involves a context. Thoughts feel like they come from nowhere sometimes, but they definitely don't. They are assisted by other thoughts in response to real and experienced things. Thinking then, and I love this metaphor, thinking is like a courtroom of sorts, a, a gathering that, that in a way allows a verdict to be reached. One of the things I really like about this is a reminder that thinking is not the verdict. It's not the judgment itself. It is, in a way, what happens around it before it and allows a judgment to be reached. In fact, this very lecture, I would say, is an example of not thinking. I'm not thinking what I'm presenting to you is the result of thinking. At least, I think we should all hope that it is. Now, very briefly, I want to move on to another philosopher, Martin Heidegger. Heidegger notes that we all have trouble with well-worn paths and one-track thinking, which are very common and often institutionalized. And I think that's where a lot of our thinking gets stuck, is, is they, the forms of thinking that we adopt become institutional. And so there, there are a set of, say, bureaucratic expectations around what we should think. We are pressured into adopting certain viewpoints and assumptions without thinking because they are a way to uphold the status quo. And I would say that thinking is the opposite of that. Thinking is inconvenient because it will not necessarily fit with the status quo. Um, it can get you into a lot of trouble. Thinkers have a tendency to get into trouble. And I think this is something that I'm in a way encouraging. I think that if you're getting into trouble, there's a possibility that you're thinking beyond what is just immediately obvious. The well-worn path soon gives way, as I know you have seen and heard, to buzzwords. And again, buzzwords are not thinking. Have you ever noticed when so-called scholars throw buzzwords around in articles or in lectures as ways to signal that they're being very profound? Um, often the longer the word uh, the, the, the more thought is being silenced. The truth is actually that the buzzword becomes a substitute for thinking. It is not thinking. Even science for Heidegger is not thinking because it tends to be over-methodological. This is something that, that Nietzsche even critiques, the idea that the sciences have actually been triumphed over by methodology, where people use methodology as a way to stop thought. In a sense, the scientist is someone who has to think long and hard about how to get rid of thinking while doing a particular study. The, the study has to almost be set up somewhat mechanically so that it follows a certain course. And I think anyone who has been involved in any kind of research knows that it's never as neat as the way it has been set up. I think 
thinking is complex and involved and requires going back in a way to the messy parts that that um, are the start of thought. If you want to grapple with this, by the way, in more detail, I would highly recommend that you visit Heidegger's book. It's actually a collection of lectures called What is Called Thinking? Um, given that we only have a little time, I'm going to have to risk a little bit of simplification. Thinking is more like listening than it is like talking. It is a response to a call. What we study or think about asks us to understand it. So there is a call that we have to hear. Thinking is also more like allowing than controlling. Thinking is closer to letting things show themselves to us rather than judging. So it's more like a, a waiting, although it is a very active passivity. I know that's a contradiction, at least a seeming contradiction. We have to be actively attuned to things to let them show themselves to us. Thinking involves reverence and gratitude for the given. I think that that's one of the things that gets lost very quickly in an age that is accelerationist or presentist in its in its orientation it annuls reverence because you're constantly hopping from one thing to the next this is a reminder of course of the the classic line from greek philosophy that philosophy itself the love of wisdom begins in wonder if we revere what we are studying, we are less likely to presume that we are the masters of that thing. Um, so thinking is something that's going to take us on a journey, and we're not necessarily going to always be in complete control of that. And that, uh, that I think, is really important. Without intellectual humility, there is definitely no thinking. This is one of the so-called intellectual virtues. I would also recommend, if you haven't done so already, to go and read up on the intellectual virtues and learn how to practice them. Note that intellectual humility helps us to assume that we have not yet understood something, even if we've begun to understand something. This is important because I think there is a tendency to think that thinking is about arriving at a conclusion and then sticking with it. And I think that is not true. I think that thinking is about working through a process to more fully understand something so that the journey can continue. There will always be more than what we can know. We're getting a bit closer to having a sense of what thinking is about already. And I realize, of course, that, that the start of this lecture is very abstract um, because, in a way, as you know, thinking is abstract. It draws from the world, but it is uh, definitely something that happens in our heads or definitely should happen in our heads but thinking about thinking is doubly abstract soon i hope you'll see we'll get to some more focused and practical applications of what i've been saying so heidegger says something else that i want to share with you from that book although i've paraphrased it slightly just so that it is a little easier to to understand because Heidegger in translation is often a little bit uh, complicated. He says, We will never learn what swimming is or what it calls for by reading a treatise on swimming. Only the leap into the river tells us what swimming really is. Similarly, the question of what thinking really is can never be answered by proposing a definition 
of the concept of thinking and then diligently explaining what is contained in that definition. There are a few key ideas from this that I take. Thinking involves being captivated by something and immersed in it. I love the metaphor of swimming because it is immersive. It is something that surrounds you um, and you're certainly acting in response to it, but there is also a, a kind of um, passivity. There is you being somewhat at the mercy of the water that you're swimming in. Thinking involves being captivated also by the act of thinking itself, which, if you give it any thought, is quite taxing. It can actually be exhausting, but I, I do think it is also thrilling. Thinking is lived, and it's not just an occasional holiday from not thinking. I would say that if not thinking is the default, thinking is unlikely to happen at all. Lastly, thinking lets things show themselves to us in their fullness. There is a fullness in thinking that transcends our ability to articulate it. One analogy for this would be emigrating. Thinking is more like emigrating or adventuring, moving house, than it is like tourism. When you emigrate, you move. You have to learn how to understand the new place that you're in. It, it's a very involved process. It's not a simplistic process at all. And a lot of people find emigrating, quite rightly, enormously stressful. You have to fit in with the new place. It is not consumable and digestible. Tourists, in contrast to this, uh, as the kind of symbols of not thinking, they have every place pre-packaged for them. Um, so there's a, a loss of anticipating otherness that happens in tourism. Another analogy would be that thinking is a little bit like peripheral vision. Learning how to think is like developing this kind of peripheral vision. Against thinking, the immediate, the immediately obvious, which I would say is not thinking, considers figures but not the ground, the picture but not the frame or the con content, the context. It con considers the content but not the context. There is a heavy amount of curation going on in not thinking. It's edited and controlled and managed. And as a result, there is very little space for revelation. And that's something that thinking must allow for, is a revelation, something to come at us from nowhere. The last analogy for this is detective work. Thinking is like a kind of detective work. I'm reminded of the, the metaphor from Chesterton's lovely novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, where he talks about philosophical detectives. It tries to understand the conditions around the so-called crime. It doesn't just look at the crime, the thing that's happened, and then make assumptions. It goes and looks for what makes the crime intelligible. And so thinking is thinking around things. As this suggests, thinking involves a double awareness. It is an awareness of the background, the conditions or context of things, and it is about developing awareness of the background of our thinking. Why do we think in these specific ways. How can we more practically begin to notice this background, this context, the conditions of intelligibility? That's what I want to get to now. So now we can get into a little bit of the meat of the practical 
application of thinking. I have three words that that sum up my approach to thinking. These are articulations that are very neat. Well, I hope they are very neat, but they are not going to necessarily fully fully capture what thinking is about. As I've said, thinking is usually a little bit more haphazard than what I'm presenting. So the 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 three words are resistance, causality, and questioning. And I'm going to deal with each of these separately. First, resistance. There is Hegel's idea that consciousness itself is negativity. This is not just the ability to say no. Thinking is not merely reacting. It's not either positive or negative. But rather, it's the ability to be confronted with what things are. This is part of the attitude of attentiveness to what is that I've been trying to encourage so far. In other words, I've not let it, what I'm considering, show itself in itself unless there is some form of resistance. The resistance is not primarily me saying no, but rather me letting things be what they are. They are not merely things that I am conceptualizing, but are things that are challenging the way that I'm conceptualizing things. This is about retaining an openness to letting things be what they are. That's what I mean by resistance. Beware, however, of confusing the figure with the ground. Resistance means that things need to show themselves in their context and not merely as figures. Then, the second word is causality. We live in a world that is obsessed with one kind of causality, it's monocausality. And that is a problem. It, it limits our capacity to think through things properly. Nothing has only one cause or one because. Nothing has only one reason for being what it is. So beware of yourself or any uh, explanation that is one-dimensional. When people say things like capitalism is the problem or neoliberalism is the problem, well, there may be a problem in those, let's say, those frameworks, but they're just being used as labels that dismiss problems. It's not actually thinking. It's just a judgment rather than an explanation. So to get to a better, more rounded sense of causality, it helps to look at Aristotle's take on causality. One of the chief sources of bad thinking is to assume, as I've said, that everything has only one cause. And a lovely way of, of referring to this is in John Gall's book, Systematics, which I would highly recommend. Really interesting read. He says there, in a closed system, information tends to decrease and hallucination to increase. In other words, there's a, the danger of a very little bit of knowledge, a little reductionistic perspective. And the danger is that it becomes a way of resisting understanding. It resists learning more. Aristotle proposed that to understand anything, you need to know four things about it. And I'm suggesting this as a way into thinking. I'm not trying to present this as thinking itself. I hope that that makes sense to you. So he suggests four causes, four B causes. The first one is the material cause. That's what things are made of. So, for example, wood is what is used to make a certain chair. This is something we tend to assume or take for granted, and that is a problem because presumption is the death of thinking. 
what we assume just moves into the background and so it's not something we can access very easily. The second cause is the efficient cause. That's what instigates a change in a state of something. And that's usually an agent. So in the case of making a chair out of wood, that would be the carpenter. He would be the efficient cause. Obviously, his tools are part of this. Um, but again, this is a problem in, in a lot of modernity and modernistic thinking that has affected where we are right now, which tends to stop at merely efficient causality. But Aristotle suggests two other causes that I think are more vital for understanding things more fully. The first is the formal cause. That is the pattern or the design that a thing is made according to, such as the specific design of a chair. But I would suggest that, that just knowing the design of the chair is not yet to understand the formal cause. That's just understanding how that specific figure looks. What we need really to understand the chair is to understand the ground. So the formal cause is more like a pattern of history and culture that conditioned that particular design of that particular chair. We now, for instance, take sitting down on a chair as, as a fairly ordinary everyday thing. It's not even something we question. What conditions created it so that we take that for granted? That would be to start thinking more along the lines of formal cause. And I'm going to... I'm going to explain this in more detail in a moment. Then the fourth cause that Aristotle suggests is the final cause. This is the purpose of the thing. All thinking answers the so what question. So obviously at a very surface level we might say that a chair is there to be to be sat on. But then there might be other considerations like should it be comfortable, should it be uncomfortable. Um, and there's, there are going to be other symbolic considerations that have to be factored in. There's always more, and that's the point of thinking. So chairs could be indicative of status. Um, they could be indicative of worldly conditions. Um, the kind of material that people are, are using to create chairs, that, that has huge implications for the world. And so there's, a there's more to final causality even um, than what we would necessarily say. Yes, it is. it has the final cause of being something that people can sit on, but it might have the final cause of damaging the environment in a certain way, say. Um, there are also wonderful symbolic considerations that you could think about. Thrones, thrones are there for rulers to sit on. They're grown-up chairs versus chairs for children, for instance. There are expensive chairs versus cheaper chairs. In the modern world, and often in research, we tend to focus our attention on efficient causality. We assume material causality and then forget formal and final causality. Or we just render those things so implicit that they're not even worth discussing. I think that the most significant form of causality is formal causality. And I think that losing formal causality is to lose thought itself. So... That raises the question of how can we understand the formal cause? And to answer that question, I'm going to get to that last word I mentioned, questioning. So we have resistance, we have causality, and we have questioning. It helps to assume the posture of the total 
ignoramus, thinking again rests in intellectual humility. Being ignorant, you can maybe jot down what you know, but also write down more questions. Write down questions about things that you don't yet fully understand. Assume that you do not fully understand them. But having said that, I do think that there are four questions that really help to get us to, well, at least closer to a sense of formal causality. There are four ways to explore and then evaluate thoughts and ideas. And obviously these thoughts and ideas, as I mentioned referring to Nietzsche, that they emerge out of an embodied experience of the world through our senses and so on. This could be some a way to conceptualize things better. So this fourfold mode of questioning, there are four words associated to this history, consequences, support, and criticism. I'll look at the, each of these individually. History. All thoughts have a history. So we can ask, where does this thought, idea, understanding come from? What journey did it take to get here? Um, everything retrieves something from history. That's something that Marshall McLuhan really emphasizes in his work. And I think Marsh Marshall McLuhan is a kind of example of really understanding formal causality very deeply. History has affected what we've ended up with. So we live in an age of presentism, as I've said, and that tends to be anti-historical. doesn't assume that thoughts have a rich history. The result of that is not thinking. The second word for questioning is, the, is consequences. Every idea has implications. Every idea exists in a sense of having drawn from the past, the history, and moving towards the future. Ideas have consequences, as Richard Weaver says. So we can ask here, what does this idea or thought or form of understanding imply? What could it lead to if taken too seriously? Everything extends and exaggerates certain things. Even an individual word is, is what hermeneutic philosophers call an intensification of being. So as soon as you mention a specific kind of word, it draws your attention to that. It intensifies the being of a certain thing. Well, what is being intensified and what are the consequences of that specific form of intensification? There are going to be implications to a specific thing being exaggerated in a certain way. Then, the third concept here that is very important is support. What conditions support or legitimate this specific idea that you're dealing with? How can we see the thought or thing in its best light? What sort of research backs that up? Is there sufficient proof and or argument to make it reliable or trustworthy? What wisdom, if any, has tested the, that particular idea that you're grappling with? So look for support for an idea in some way. But then, very importantly, look for the negative. I've already re mentioned resistance. Well, here's where it comes into play when we're searching for formal causality. What objections can be raised against this particular thought? Is there something missed or overlooked by what people are saying to support the idea? Is the foundation solid or is it a little bit flimsy and in what way? What does the thought fail to account for? Something 
is always emitted in thinking. And that's just because we are finite beings. So we look at the world in a very finite way. It's very important to realize that and to and to take that dimension of ourselves seriously. We do have to leave certain things out while we are thinking through things. Again, the key idea in everything I've said is if it's obvious, you're probably not thinking. Two of the most pervasive problems that I run across again and again in my work when I'm reviewing research or looking at student work or proposals, that kind of thing, two of those problems are category error and confirmation bias, basically. So what I'd like to do is just look at these two facets of well, these problems in thinking, um, I want to cover those before I end. First, a category error. A category mistake, as it's also known, is an ontological error in which things belonging to a particular category are presented as if they belong to a different category. Or alternatively, a property is ascribed to a thing that could not possibly have that property. It's very important to look at the point of words, especially in thinking. Words are supposed to elucidate, clarify. They're supposed to bring certain things into a kind of presence. And if the category is actually occluding things, if it's hiding something, there is a problem. So clarifying your categories is often a really simple way to get your thinking better. This is not the same as defining. Remember Heidegger's example of swimming that I mentioned earlier. Although defining is certainly important, but the chief thing is to do a test for just in terms of looking at what the definition accounts for and what it fails to account for. This is probably the chief error that I encounter in scholarly work. It's a failure to understand why things are, causality, and a failure to understand how things are. And that's the point of the fourfold mode of questioning that I mentioned. And then, lastly, there is the problem of confirmation bias. It's very important if we're thinking to challenge confirmation bias. Um, it is helpful, and this is something I would recommend that you do, to really go and look at how self-deception works because we are all prone to it. No one is exempt from this. Self-deception is a, it's a defensive mode of existing, and it is one of the ways that we hamper our ability to, to think. So you can tell very quickly if thinking is dead when people set out to simply confirm the bias of a particular theory. I do think that confirmation bias sets itself up as a way to substitute thinking. So it's not there to create a space for thinking, a, a, a space for negation or resistance. It's just there to keep biases perfectly in place. I do have a question on this, which is that if you already have an answer, why bother doing the research? Why bother thinking about something? If you already have your judgments fixed in stone, you may be doing scholarship. That's if the publish or perish model is being appeased here but you're not really thinking. So beware in a way, again, this is a very important just component of, I think, what it, what thinking is about. Beware of smooth thinking 
that never has to allow for self-critique or is too dismissive of self-critique. This is thinking without negativity. And in terms of what I've been saying, this is actually not really thinking. It's not really getting into the depth. So just as I sum up very briefly, there are two thoughts that have sort of driven this very vast exploration. I hope that at least you've got some more concrete sense of, of, of a way into thinking before you look at things around, say, critical thinking. Your attitude to thought is vital. Are you really trying to discover something? Is thinking an ad adventure for you? Are you really going out there to explore? I think that is so so vital for thought, is just to, to be willing to have your mind changed. And then, are you weighing up your thoughts? Are you testing your thinking, doing that intellectual detective work? Are you swimming in the water that you are imagining? Um, are you letting reality actually challenge the way that you've conceptualized things? If yes, well, then you are on a really good track. And I would say, sort of just as a way to conclude, above all things, cultivate intellectual virtue. Recognize, of course, that you're never going to have all the answers. You're never going to be absolutely without flaws in your thinking. I don't think there is a point to a perfectionism in thinking. But I do think that aiming for understanding things more deeply is really well worth doing. So there you have it. Um, I hope that this has been interesting to you in some way, uh, a way to challenge some of your ideas on thinking. Of course, you will have many of your own, and that in itself is wonderful. Cheers, everyone. Cheers.